John Stott says, some Christians seem to do little but pray for new spiritual blessings. Let me read that again. Some Christians seem to do little but pray for new spiritual blessings. Apparently oblivious of the fact that God has already blessed them in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Others lay such an emphasis on the undoubted truth that everything is already theirs in Christ that they've become complacent and appear to have no appetite to know or experience their Christian privileges uh, more deeply. And then he says, so what is the request in this text? Is it not that they may receive a second, or it is not that they may receive a second blessing, but rather they may appreciate to the fullest possible extent the implications of the blessing they have already received. To not be praying for more blessings when we've already received every spiritual blessing in Christ. On the one hand, that's a problem. And on the other hand, as Christians that so assume all the blessings that they've become complacent. They've quit looking at them. They've believed that they've exhausted them. In this text, we're going to see Paul pray that we know to a greater degree what God has done for us in Christ. And that after praising God for every spiritual blessing that we pray, we ought to learn something. We don't just learn facts and grow in Christ because unless those facts hit our hearts and change our hearts, we will not be changed by them. So it's as we look at these truths in Christ, we then need to pray that our hearts are enlightened, that we know them from the heart and not merely our mind. How many people will deceive themselves and end up in hell because they've only merely known things about Christ and yet have never had the spiritual work done in their hearts? So as we read Scripture, as we study, we should always pray that the Spirit enlightens our hearts and our minds to understand the thing that we're studying. So the charge of this message is to praise God and pray for the Spirit to give you an even greater knowledge and love for Christ. Let's look at how he begins in verse 15. For this reason, after he's laid out every spiritual blessing in Christ. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus 
and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just stop there for a minute. Because he heard of their faith and their love towards the saints, he gave thanks to God. Because faith and love cannot come from man alone. But the Spirit of God has to give the new birth for those truths to be true in their lives. Paul doesn't thank them for their faith and them for their love, but he thanks God for their love. And he remembers Christians in his prayers. In verse 17, he says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he views an authentic Christian as one who has faith in Christ and who has love for Christ's church and Christ's people. That's who he's praying for. And then he says in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, and here's what he prays for, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So what we see here is that Paul is praying for maturity in wisdom and knowledge of knowing Christ. Paul can't fathom the, the thing we see so often in the American church, in American evangelicalism, which is this idea that you just receive Jesus and that's all the thinking you need to do. That's all the study we need to do. We realized he died for our sins. Now we're done thinking. That's not, that's not how Paul prays for the church. Paul prays that the spirit of wisdom, which is the Holy Spirit, one of the jobs the Holy Spirit does is the work of enlightening hearts. We can't understand spiritual things apart from the spirit of wisdom opening our hearts and minds to the things of Christ. Do you realize that? Do you real, realize Christopher Hitchens, uh, the, a famous atheist, read the whole Bible and then spent the rest of his life telling people how horrible God was? He read it. He maybe read it in a way most Christians haven't read it. He said he read it word for word. And his conclusion was, God is evil. Was he not smart? No, he was an intelligent man. Did he have the enlightening of the Holy Spirit upon him to understand the things of Christ, to see the glory of Christ? 
he surely did not. Paul prays that we would know him at a heart level. Look at what he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Did you know a heart can have eyes? The heart is the inner man. The heart is where we think. It's where our affections lie. It's where desires which produce actions come from. Paul prays for Christians that they grow in maturity of knowledge, of in maturity of wisdom of Jesus. Did you know that the more clearly you see Jesus, the more you'll become like him? Look at 1 John 3, 1 with me. Let me show you this principle. 1 John 3, 1. We're looking for the principle that if we see God, we'll become more like him. If we see Christ, if we have a greater knowledge of Christ, we'll become more like him. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Right now in the present, you as Christians are children of God. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Essentially saying the reason why you're so weird, Christians, is because you're His children, and they didn't know Christ. The world didn't know Christ. And then He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be is not yet appeared, meaning we're still struggling with sin, aren't we? But we know, here's the key, that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. See, I always thought I'd just become perfect one day when Christ returns because he's just going to do a miracle. He's just going to do a miracle, but apparently God is going to change us through our knowledge and through our thinking and through our faith as we see Christ face to face perfectly, as we see him perfectly, we will be transformed into his perfect image. And then look at, it, look at this, this is so important, verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him, every Christian who is saying, I need to know more of Christ. I need to study more of what he's done for me. I need to study more of his power and of his glory. It says, everyone who thus hopes in him, what does he do? Purifies himself as he is pure. So the greater you know him now, the more you're going to become like him in your spiritual walk now. It's really practical what Paul's praying for. I know they know you, Lord, for they already love the saints and they have faith in Christ, but Holy Spirit, Father, send the Holy Spirit, help them know Christ more.
because you are what you worship. Did you know that? You are what you worship. Look at Psalm 135, verse 15. Psalm 135, verse 15. After he laid out the glory of God in comparison to the idols of the day, he, and, and he's in the midst of mocking the idols, he says in verse 15, the idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouth. Look at verse 18. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Israel makes a golden calf, and God says they're a stiff-necked people. You will become like what you worship. No wonder Paul prays that we have a vision of Christ, that we know Christ. If, if you are bored in your knowledge of Christ, I know what your spiritual life is like. You're becoming more dead as you chase after other idols which can't give life. Look at a teenage kid that has some idol. What does he do? He begins to dress like him. He begins to talk like him. He wants to be like him. You will become like what you worship. It matters what we do with our hearts, Christian. It matters what we look at and what we see and what we care about. And so Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit enlightens our eyes to the knowledge of Christ. This is the work of the Spirit. What did David say in Psalm 119, verse 18? Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Never just open your Bible and read. Pray that God would open your eyes to see wonderful things in his word. How often have you read it and been dull? We need to think. We need the Spirit to help us understand. And we need our hearts to love the very truths God gives us. In John 15, 26, we're told of the Holy Spirit. He, Jesus says, when the Helper comes... I'll send him to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He'll bear witness about me. That's the Spirit's job is to bear witness about Christ to show us. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, we see that anyone who's been saved, it's a demonstration of spirit and power. That couldn't happen apart from the Holy Spirit. In fact, in, in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, 
that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Do you realize we needed the Spirit to understand at a heart level? You can understand at a mind level in your flesh. You can't love Him in your flesh. And impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. No wonder Paul prays that as he wants them to grow in knowledge of Christ, he prays that the Spirit would enlighten the eyes of their heart. What does he want them to know? Three main things. He says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So he wants you to know your calling, but not just your calling, the hope of your calling. John Stott points out that our calling points us back to the beginning. In our experience of salvation, the moment we were called is the moment God took the veil off our eyes and we saw Christ for who he really is and we chose him. We we said, I want Christ. I'm a sinner. I need him. That's the day you were called effectually. That's the day when your election was brought about in reality in a moment. As I began to study the hope of our calling, I realized we don't have enough time. Because what God has called us to, the hope of it is out of this world. I'll share some verses with you, but it's the whole Christian life. Now, if we're honest, have you ever felt like, what's the purpose of my life? I mean, what's the purpose of my existence? This daily grind. What's the point? The whole world's trying to figure out their purpose. They're they're running down dead-end highways that'll never answer that question. But when we as Christians feel that way, we've forgotten our calling. We've forgotten what we've been called to. And so Paul prays that you wouldn't forget. In fact, in Ephesians 4, 4, He says, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called, there's that word, to one hope that belongs to your call. If you have Christ, you have everything. All of his promises are yes and amen in Christ. You don't have to turn to these, just listen to them. What have you been called to, Christian? Romans 1, 6. Including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. You were called to belong to Jesus Christ. You were called to belong to Jesus Christ. Yeah, I don't have no purpose in my life. I don't have no, I don't know what the point of my life is. 
Christ bought you. You're his. You're his servant. He's the king of kings. You serve the one who is Lord of all. Our 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You were called into fellowship with Jesus? What's the point of my life? Just that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? the second person of the Trinity. And if you have fellowship with him, you have fellowship with the Spirit, and you have fellowship with the Father. Romans 1.7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, you're called to be saints. You're called to be the ones that are set apart, that are holy. 2 Timothy 1.9 who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He called you to be holy, Christian. Oh, I'm bored. I don't know what to do. Really? You don't have any remaining sin in your life that needs to be put to death? Your calling is to be holy, to be set apart, to glorify him with your life, to glorify him with your body. You realize all that we have to do in light of our calling? And that he called us to be holy, not because we were doing pretty good in our works, but because of pure grace. That's why he called us to be holy. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 says, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Galatians 5, 13 says, for you were called to freedom. You were called to freedom. You weren't called to wallow in your sin and all of your stupid mistakes you've made in the past. You were called the freedom in Christ. Get out of this slavery. Look at Jesus Christ. Look at the grace he's given you in your life. Quit pouting. Quit playing the victim. Remember your calling, Christian. Our Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. You were called to be at peace, Christian, in your heart. Everything most important in your life has been settled in Jesus Christ. Quit worrying. And you were called to be at peace in one body, not to isolate from one another, but together we're called to be at peace. Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, I therefore, a prisoner of Christ, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, with bearing one another in love. So we've been called to walk in a manner worthy. We're to be humble, gentle, patient, bearing one another with lo- in love. 
Are you born? Well, look around at each other. Everyone else is battling away in a fallen world. Everyone else here is living in a foreign land. We need each other's love. We need each other's encouragement. We need to be built up in love. We need to be unified of heart. First Peter 2.20 For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good you suffer for it, or, but if, you, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is the gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so you, that you might follow in his footsteps. He's called you to suffer. He's called you to do good and to suffer for it. First Peter 5.10, he says, After you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you, to his eternal glory in Christ. He's called you to his eternal glory in Christ so that you might follow in his, uh, our, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So while he's called you to suffer, he's also called you to remember your hope to what he's calling you to. Here's how Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians 2.12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Our Philippians 3.14, this is the last one. I press on towards the goal for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul pressed on. There was a goal in his life. There was a purpose in his life. He's to set his eyes on things above. And yet Paul prays that we remember our call, the hope of our call, because he knows that often we're going to forget and become discouraged and forget and, and begin to think what purpose does God have for me in my life? Which when we think about it is silly, isn't it? That we would ever feel that way. And yet we so often do. Why? You have to know why. It's because we become lazy in our lifting our eyes to understand and know Christ, to see him in his word and to love him. That's why. All right. Secondly, Spirit, help me understand from the heart the glory of my inheritance. So if he wants us to understand the hope of our call, now he wants us to understand the glory of our inheritance. So he wanted us to remember from the beginning our call, and now he wants us to look to the end and remember our inheritance. We talked about this last week. 
So God's inheritance points us to the end where we'll see God face to face as we'll be seated with Christ at God's right hand. And when that happens, we'll be transformed into his likeness, holy and without sin. It's where we'll forever share in the richest fellowship in the presence of the Trinity with all the saints. Do you realize that our inheritance points us to the greatest party there ever was? I mean, if I think of the, my favorite times on earth, whether it's at Christmas time when family gathers together, I think back when my grandparents were alive and my cousins would come and we would have this celebration. We would eat our favorite foods and we would love this fellowship. Or I think of Camp Judson when where your cell phone barely works and you get to get away from the everyday life and every day eat three meals with fellow Christians and feast on the word together, and then worship together, and then play games together, and then sit and rock and look at God's creation together. And yet, in my inheritance, I get to be in the fellowship of the Trinity, which my mind can't even fathom, with all the saints. That's why Luke 11, I think it is, terrifies me. That there are some that will stand at the door and knock. The door's already shut. Abraham's already in. With the saints. Feasting with God's people. And there's some who are left out. They said, let us in. You know us. We ate in your streets. Essentially, we were in your presence. Basically, we went to church. We knew all the right stuff in that. Head, come on, you know us. And they're left out. And yet saints, look at the fellowship that we have in our inheritance. You think it's good on earth when your family's together? Or your friends are together? What's it going to be like when we get to fellowship with God and all the saints? It'll be the place where... All evil will be destroyed where there will be no more rebellion. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Every tear will be wiped away. All things will be united in Christ. All creation will be set free from bondage. All this is wrapped up in our inheritance. Paul wants us to remember the glory of our inheritance. If we don't think of these things, you'll live for earthly things. And I will live for earthly things. If the things of earth is more real than the inheritance that we're going to receive on that day, then that'll determine what we do with our time and what we do with our money and what we do with our life. So we're to see the hope of our calling, the glory of our inheritance, and thirdly, Paul prays that the Spirit help me understand from the heart the greatness of His power towards me. 
So we just looked at what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now we're looking at and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believes. And the rest, the, the, the rest of the verses are unpacking his power, the greatness of his power. Don't get lost in Paul's thought. If the call pointed us back to the beginning and the inheritance points us to the end, which John Stott points those things out so helpfully in his commentary, then his power, the greatness of his power is for us to know now. In, the, in, in this time, how am I going to live the Christian life? What is it to know his power? Let's look at this. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ. So here's an illustration of his power. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's one act. And seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. That's the ascension. That's another act. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. There is no power. You take all the Greek gods that they're tempted to worship and believe in, and Christ is above all of them. It's not even close. Any gods, the so-called gods that will come in the future, any in the past, He's greater than all of them. He is seated in an authoritative place of power. That power was demonstrated in his resurrection. It's demonstrated in where he's sitting. And it's demonstrated in his defeat of every enemy. Far above, verse 21, far above every rule and power and dominion. Above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So first... He prays that we understand his power. Then he gives us the illustration. He gives us the illustration of Christ defeating death, being resurrected. You think of who our enemies are. What had power over us? We're going to see in chapter 2, the very next text, that there's three things against us. The world system, the devil, and our own flesh are against us. If you want to summarize it, there's the devil and evil outside us, and there's evil inside us. And we can't deliver ourselves from that. And an enemy, because of those two things, is death. 
That's what stands in front of us because of our sin. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus has so much power, he conquers death. He was raised from the dead. This world is trying to defeat death, or at least push it back. (laughs) The rich are freezing their bodies, hoping that someday they'll find a way that they'll never die. But only Christ can defeat death. Christ has defeated death, and that put his power on display. No power had ever been able to defeat death, and Christ defeated it. And he defeated it by bearing your sin and my sin, if you're trusting in Christ, on the cross. He overcome the evil that would bring about our death on the cross. And when he did that, and the devil, our enemy, they used to be able to come to us and say, you should be worried right now. Because you're a sinner. What does the devil do? The devil says, look at this. This ain't bad. You should, you should do this. Then you do it, and then he says, look at you. You're a dog. Death is coming. Death is coming because you're evil, and you deserve it. But when Christ died for sinners, he disarmed Satan. Satan comes to the Christian and says, look at that sin. You're going to hell. Fear of death. And then we say, no, look at my Christ. You've been defeated. Sin's been paid for. Remember, the seed of the woman crushes the serpent's head. All of his enemies will be under his feet. You see, he's disarmed. What's he got when the Christian is wielding faith? And so we're to see this power, God's power over death, God's power over evil. Every enemy is put under his feet. You used to be enslaved to the fear of death. Now that's been destroyed. And then you used to be enslaved to sin, and now you're not anymore. Do you still sin, Christian? Yes, you do. Do you have to sin? No, you don't. You're no longer enslaved. There is a way out in every scenario. There's a way to trust God. God has given you the church. God has given you the Holy Spirit. God has given you his word. And so when we sin, we fail to exercise faith. What do we do? We walk with the flesh rather than walk with the spirit but we're no longer enslaved to sin. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There's your enemies. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Do you realize when you're saved, the greatest miracle began to happen? People actually started glorifying God in the here and now. He brought about new spiritual life. And then in verse 10 of Romans 8, it says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life, uh, or the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He rescues us from the own evil that's in our heart. One day it'll be perfectly done. But now it's a progression of being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to the another, depending on how we see Christ. Why should you come to Scott's Sunday school class where... We look at doctrine and we study the deep things of God and we gain ground in our understanding of who God is because that'll change your heart and your whole life flows out of your heart. That's how you're conformed to the image of Christ. This is the Christian life. He shows his power in not only raising from the dead, but his ascension, every enemy's put under his feet. And then we get to this incredible statement. He put all things under his feet in verse 22 and gave him his head over all things to the church. So the one who is over the head of the universe is the head of the church. The illustration is this, the church is the body, and the head gives life and directs the body what to do. The one who has all power, remember, what's he praying for? Let's not get lost. He's praying that we understand the greatness of his power. And his power is above the universe, and that is who the head of the churches. What a wonderful thought. So how am I going to live my life today? Remember the greatness of his power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that will help you fight sin today. It's the same power that gave you the new birth, transformed your heart, it's the same power that will enlighten your eyes and it's the same power that will transform you perfectly one day into the image of Christ. And then it says, the head over all the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I think what he's saying there is Christ, who is the fullness of God, fills the church. Everything the church is, is filled up and given life from Christ. 
Reminds me of Colossians 2.9 when Paul says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So that book that I held up, When People Are Big and God is Small, just think of this truth right here. We look at, so often we're controlled by fear of man. What's man going to think of me? What is man going to think of me? And when we're worried about that, our God is very small. But this truth tells us Christ, who is the fullness of God, who is above every rule and authority, has filled you. While it might be nice to have people like us, the church is not a needy body. The church is full in Christ. The church is full in Christ. Yeah, but they're going to think this. Yeah, but they're going to think that. Yeah, but what if this happens? What if I look stupid? It's as if Jesus is saying, yeah, but what about, what have I done? How much have I filled you up? And Paul is saying, Father, help them remember their call. Help them see the glory of the inheritance and help them remember the greatness of the power that is towards them. That's what the text says. God's power is towards us in Christ Jesus.